Jo, and this is Looking Outside. Welcome back, everyone. I've been really, really eagerly waiting this conversation. Um, it's going to be super fun. Today on the show, we're talking about culture. We're looking at the role of brands in engaging in or even influencing culture with marketing professor, author of For the Culture, and all-round awesome human being, Dr. Marcus Collins. Welcome to the show, Marcus. Thank you for having me. I am really excited for this. We've been, this has been in the makings for a while. So I'm glad it it's happening and I'm, I'm stoked <laughs> for it. I'm I'm so, so excited about this. So let's start for anybody that doesn't know you. And I know you have a very strong public presence, uh, which is very warranted. So if you don't know Marcus, uh, what are you doing? What hole are you in? But for those <laughs> who don't know you, a little bit of an intro into who you are. I have the fortunate pleasure of uh, living in two worlds. I have a foot in the world of academia, a foot in the world of practice as a professor at the Ross School of Business, University of Michigan, but also as a practitioner, particularly within the world of, of, of advertising and marketing communications. And I wrote a book called For the Culture that really marries the two, considering my job is to sort of sit as the bridge between academia and practice, take these things that we rigorously interrogate and, 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 and find a home in its application. So what does it mean? How does it actually impact the way practitioners uh, go about their, their work? Whether your practice is a traditional marketer or a, a manager, an entrepreneur, a politician, activist, and the like. Yeah, awesome. So it feels like culture is very much your forte now. And you, you talk about it a lot with a lot of credibility. And what I love, which we're going to get into in a second, is that you've actually gone and researched culture. So the kind of social sciences to make sure that you're credible in talking about it, which is which is amazing. But is that something that you've always been interested in? Or did you kind of like discover it in recent years and then become an expert in it? It definitely was not intentional by any stretch. I, I was born and raised in Detroit. Uh, I always start that way because I feel like I'm a product of the city. Went to school to study engineering because I did well in math and science. And that's what you did in the 90s. You did well in math and science. You're going to be an engineer. So that's what I studied. But I realized I didn't really want to do that. I thought it was interesting, but I wasn't entirely interested. And I remember coming home to my parents, you know, I, I don't think I want to be an engineer. My mother, who's an academic, says, wait till you get to your major. You'll love it. I go, well, okay. You know, I trust my mom. Uh, I did not love it, come to find. And I ended up taking some music theory courses to offset my terrible GPA. Because uh, I'd want to be, I mean, in my heart of hearts, I wanted to be the fifth member of Voice to Man. That was like the goal, the dream in life. <laughs> didn't work goal. out for me, Joe. But that was the hope. <laughs> uh, so I took some music theory courses and really fell in love with major sevenths. It's like the sound just felt so familiar, but like new. And I couldn't remember being more excited about learning than in that moment. So I came home to my parents said, you know, mom, dad, I think I want to be a, a songwriter. And they said, we think you're crazy because that ain't going to happen. <laughs> that is not the thing. So mm. I finished my engineering degree. And after school, I went into the world of music, um, writing songs. Remember, I wrote love songs for, for a living for about five and a half years, almost six years before going back to school to study marketing. And even then, culture wasn't even a part of my lexicon. It wasn't even a part of sort of how I thought about marketing as a practitioner. I think that I used all these words and all these phrases and maybe these frames that were tangential, but culture wasn't the language I was using. I went work at Apple, ended up doing partner marketing uh, at iTunes, met Matthew Knowles, who has a daughter named Beyonce. 
And he's like, you're an engineer, you started a music company, you have an MBA, you work at iTunes, and you're black. Who are you? You're a unicorn. You don't <laughs> exist. You're not real. And I go, well, I'm real. I'm Marcus. And he says, well, you should run digital strategy for Beyonce. And I go, oh, yeah, I should definitely do that. And even then, culture wasn't even a part of my lexicon. Went to go work in advertising at a pure play social media agency named Big Fuel. They got acquired by Publicis. Even then, culture, not a part of my lexicon. It wasn't until I met Steve Stout, who was an, a marketing executive and an advertising executive who started an agency called Translation with Jimmy Iovine and Jay-Z. And the agency's sort of point of view in the world was to help ambitious brands thrive in contemporary culture. And he, like that framing felt like music, like, like, like music theory, it felt familiar, but new. It felt novel, but fluid. And I was using the words a lot. Like, yeah, we get our ideas out in the culture, out in culture, 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 culture. But I realized my understanding of culture was very superficial. And it's that inflection point that really started me on this path of studying the social sciences and applying it to the work as, as, a, as, a, as a practitioner. Oh, wow. Incredible. What like unique life story. So I can understand why anybody would call you a unicorn because like particularly your curiosity is very self-evident that, you know, the fact that you're like one of the first things that you said is that you're excited about learning. You go down one path like engineering and then you're able to pivot into something very creative that requires a very different skill set and even approach and mindset like music. I think that that kind of balance between the science and the art and finding the commonalities and seeking out the differences and just being very open to having a different experience in life and going down a different path is very telling about your personality, but also very well fitted with culture, right? Because culture, I think a lot of people think it's it's a little bit more on the creative side, but there's so much science behind it, so much rigor in understanding how even, you know, biology or external factors influence how we think and behave. So it's a, actually really like a perfect thing for you to be doing because you do have to balance the the science and the art. I love that calculation. Thank you. That's great. That's great. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's interesting because while I didn't refer to myself as an engineer even as an engineering student, when I graduated, I didn't work as an as engineer professionally. Even though I didn't, I don't adopt that moniker easily, or it's not readily kind of an identifier that I go to. I learned how to think because of engineering. Like I think like an engineer, and probably you know I wrote songs like an engineer. It's probably why I wasn't successful as a songwriter. But no, <laughs> I, I always thought about like what's the underlying physics of a thing. Like what are the underlying systems that inform the thing because there's a system in everything. And as an engineer, I did materials engineering. So I, I thought a lot about, about uh, carbon chains and their structures and how those things interact with each other based on shared affinities for electrons. And I think about the same phenomenon in music, right? Shared affinity for a chord change, shared affinity for a melody, shared affinity for, for rhythm, shared affinity for a vocal timbre that brings people together. I think the same thing goes when it comes to marketing communication. It's about shared affinities for, uh, for a point of view about the world, shared affinities for aesthetics of a product, shared affinities for the place that we demarcate for ourselves as, as social actors in this phenomenal phenomenally social world, I mean, they're all kind of driven by the same underpinning. What is the underlying physics? And if we can understand that, 
that we can create interventions that make things move to the left or to the right. I think as marketers, I, 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 that is our job to get people to move and understanding that becomes part and parcel to us being successful at our job. Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, marketing is the ultimate art of persuasion, right? So you need to be able to demonstrate that you are persuading people to do something for you, which I think is very nicely connected into what culture is all about. And you talk about this in your book. So for anybody that hasn't got a copy for the culture, shout out uh, and we'll drop it into the show notes. But You know, one thing that you say kind of early on is defining culture, because I think that a lot of people would have a very kind of different concept or idea about what culture even means. And so like one of the things that you set up up front is culture comes from the Latin word colere. Am I saying that Mm -hmm. right? Colere, close enough. (laughs) (laughs) Which means to cultivate. Um, So I think maybe some people feel like culture is something that happens to you. You're born into it. It's kind of out of your control. And maybe it is when you're young and when you're first growing up, but then it's very much cultivated by you and defined by you. So what, what else about culture as you were learning about it from that more social sciences or the historical aspect was surprising for you? So to start to your point, the etymology I thought was really interesting that it's about, it's to cultivate, it's to, it's to, uh, to, to harness, to nurture. And it's no surprise that we use agriculture as the moniker for harvesting and nurturing crops so that there is uniformity in the way they grow, right? Any, any farmer or any, any agriculturalists who's growing crops and harvesting crops, they want uniformity in their crops. They want them all to be good. And the same thing goes when it comes to humanity, right? We develop cultures as a way of, of having uniformity in our people and people who are part of a society. Doing so creates expectations that are most likely to be met, which also means safety for us, cognitively speaking. And that's just an interesting evolution of culture's etymology. But then to your, your your points that, you know, when you start to think about culture and its omnipresent nature, it goes, goodness gracious, how do you define this thing that's all around us and everything we do? It's like explaining water to a fish. It's in everything. So I, 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 I had to think about this through the lens of some like academic grounding. And most of my academic repertoire sits in the world of sociology. So I started there. It's like, you know, how, how did how did sociologists study culture. So I looked at Emil Durkheim, Weber, Max Weber, and Karl Marx. And I, I tend to, to lean towards Durkheim because my, my, my academic research sits a lot in contagion, social contagion. And that's the work of, of, of Durkheim, at least some of the work of Durkheim. And Durkheim talks about culture as a system of conventions and expectations that demarcate who we are and govern what people like us do. You go, oh, it's a system, okay, of expectations <laughs> Uh, that govern our behavior and map out who we are in this world. And therefore, this idea of cultivating, of, 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 of nurturing and harvesting, these are the nurturing of the systems or the, the mechanisms of the system so that we stay in lockstep. Go, that makes a lot of sense, totally. But what are those systems? Later on, a, a, a scholar named Raymond Williams, a cultural theorist, starts to unpack these systems in really meaningful, tangible ways. He talks about the being anchored in our identity, who we are, 
right? Which is multi-hyphenated and full of intersectionality, all its complexities, right? I'm a professor, it's an individual referent. I'm in a fraternity, that's a group referent. I'm a father of two little girls, that's an abstract referent. And the alchemy of these monikers make up who I am. And because of who I am, I see the world a certain way. I have a certain set of beliefs and ideologies. These are truths that we hold. And to your your point about, about you know, culture is just sort of fixed on us. It's just sort of given to us. Well, at birth, yeah, there are some cultural subscriptions or identities that we don't have control over, right? Like I was born a Collins, so I am a Collins. However, there is some agency where I can change my name if I no longer feel like that moniker is reflective of my identity. But in most cases, that's who, who we are. And the cultures of our family, we feel like we don't have very much agency. We just kind of got a deal. But that culture is ascribed to us. Almost every other culture that we are a part of is subscribed. That is, we take it on with volition. I choose to go to this school and identify as a Michigan Wolverine. I choose to join this fraternity and identify as a member of Phi Beta Sigma. I choose to join this church. I choose to join this group. I choose to join this, this, this groups of friends. This is a subscription where I am a, subscribing my identity and then adhering to the beliefs, the shared beliefs, which connects us, and then paying mind to or, or, or adhering to those shared way of life, the artifacts that we don, the behaviors that are normative, the language that, that we use, and then we express ourselves through cultural works. And the alchemy of these systems or systems of systems ultimately make up our culture and it informs almost every aspect of daily living, whether we're aware of it or not. And that to me, I think is just unbelievably powerful. Yeah, definitely. And so much rich ground for brands as well to dig into beyond, you know, standard demographics, psychographics, personas, et cetera. That's right. And, and the interesting part about that, just jumping, because I, lo I love the way you, you went there. I think that's the, the perfect place to go is that we typically rely on demographics for segmentation as marketers, right? And the idea of segmentation is that there's a heterogeneous market, right, where everyone's different, even twins are different. And we put them in homogeneous-like clusters where they're more alike than they are different. And we historically have used demographics to do that. But demographics don't actually describe people. Right? They just don't. Right? They're easily obtainable, easily observable, but they aren't very accurate. Savvy marketers instead focus on psychographics, where their interests, where they like, where their attitudes, where they go, you know, et cetera. And I, and I agree that psychographics is a far better way of describing people and therefore segmenting them. But our interests, our likes, our attitudes, our behaviors are byproducts of our cultural subscription. You wear what you wear, you style your hair the way you do, where you went to school, who you marry, if you marry, what you eat, where you vacation, how you bury the dead, if you bury the dead, these psychographic markers of identity, right? We would call psychographics, like what people do, what they like, their affinities. These are byproducts of their cultural subscription, which makes culture a far more powerful way to segment the market as opposed to definitely better than demographics and, 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 and I arguably say an optimized, augmented approach than, than psychographics. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, psychographics or personas or even like Jung's archetypes, they make marketers' jobs a, a, like a little bit easier. But whenever I see them in presentations, you know, like the pleasure seekers and 
very simple monikers that we ascribe to these groups. They assume that, that there are enough of a group of people that are exactly the same from a mental perspective. So from how they deal with things emotionally or psychologically, and therefore how that turns into their behavior. I mean, that is just such a huge label to put on how people think and feel. And we know that human beings are contradictory, that they can be two things at once. And you touched on this before, and this is uh, somewhere where I'd love to go, which is also beautifully expressed in your book. We do have these kinds of functions of culture and these codes of culture that allow us to be born into something, but then to ascribe or subscribe to something. So it's that balance between what we are given and what we choose to believe in and choose to do. But at the same time, we are emotional human beings, right? Like we're nonsense, like we're, we're really, really stupid in a way, right? Like we, <laughs> we make no sense to ourselves sometimes. Like we make a goal, we go against it the very next second. Like we're illogical yeah. in many ways. So how do you think about that? And, and in particular, how do, you, how do you give advice to brands who are saying, you know, there are these codes and these things are true and people do make these choices, but at the same time, people are completely contradictory and they could ascribe to something that goes completely against their belief system. That's right. I mean, so the, the, the point you make is, uh, it is a complex one because it makes it difficult. Like, you know, humanity is, is nonsensical. You know, like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson says, when human behavior enters the equation, things go nonlinear. That's why physics is easy and sociology is hard, right? Because we do things that are contradictory. We do things that are not rational because we are not rational animals. And the truth of the matter is that we can never 100% predict human behavior. We just can't do it. But we can get pretty close. Why? Because there is some predictability in our unpredictability, right? And that is we tend to go the path of people like ourselves, right? We follow people who are like us. And I think, you know, the the point you make about the archetypes that we give people, they aren't how people see themselves. They don't look in the mirror and say, I'm a pleasure seeker. It says, I'm a pleasure seeker. I see the world this way and I navigate the world that way. And you know what, Joe, she's a pleasure seeker too. Here we are, pleasure seekers. No one identifies like that. And yeah. therefore, the the, 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 the the social solidarity that comes from community, that comes from belonging, does not is not realized in those monikers. And therefore, they don't accurately describe who people are and definitely doesn't predict what they're likely to do. In fact, you know, biologically, we're all pleasure seekers to some degree or another. So what I would tell brands is like, listen, the idea is to go the path where you're more likely to get a result, more likely to influence behavior because that's our job to get people to move. So the question becomes, what are the levers that we can pull that are most likely to get people to adopt behavior? And then we ask ourselves, well, first, well, who are we trying to influence? Who are those people? And the way I'd like to tell marketers is like, we'll start with the people who I call the collective of the willing. Like if, if, if this is a party and I want to dance, say I want to, I want to dance with someone, right? And the music is playing. I can either find someone who's already dancing. That person is probably more likely to dance than someone who's sitting on the side with their arms folded with a grimace on their face, <laughs> right? 
you're more likely to get a person who's already dancing to dance. So find the people who already believe. Find the people who are already in the boat where I'm not asking them to do a new thing. I'm tapping into a behavior they're already doing. You're more likely to get a more predictable outcome if we tap into a thing that already exists. So when we're talking about the beliefs and ideologies people have, start there because their behavior are more likely to be byproducts of them. Now, what about the people who don't act consistently? Well, understanding what those inconsistencies are helps us navigate what normally would seem to be nonsensical. Mm. It makes much more sense when we go, look, you know, these people, they say they don't like this, but they actually go like it anyway. I think, um, what was this? uh, Reed Hastings spoke about this before, that when Netflix first launched, they allowed people to make a like a, a backpack of what movies they want to watch, right? Make a list of movies they want to watch. And the idea was that we look, Netflix would look at that list and go, great, those are the titles that we should go acquire because people are signaling to us what they want to watch. And when they'd go acquire some of those titles, like, you know, like you know, very artsy fartsy movies, they realized that like people weren't watching the movies, they're watching Adam Sandler movies. And it's like, oh, people will self-report one thing, but act differently. <laughs> Right. And you go, well, which one's mm-hmm. true? Well, they're both true. Yeah. That people want to project, they want to be seen sort of a, a certain tier within the socioeconomic status uh, or social hierarchy with regards to art and film. But in reality, they want a certain level of, of, of high brownness to not yeah. be. Understanding that complexity in people's identity, their projected identity, and their behavior. This just requires intimacy. And that's where we need to be as marketers. Like, what are people doing? What are the what are the the social facts of these given groups of people relative to whatever the context may be? And understanding in all their what may be conflicting behaviors, understanding them gives us the opportunity to actually help people feel seen, to be like, ah, oh, you got me. Yeah, it's true. Totally. And then that happens, people feel connected. And that's what we're after here. Yeah, right. And you can do that with mainstream culture and counterculture, right? Because I think a lot of people would be like, well, but there are so many niche emerging fringe cultures that are starting to come through that are counter to some of the mainstream sure. cultures. But actually, they're, they're also, I mean, culture in itself is an evolution over time. It's not static, right? So they are also a part of that. And they, they are also an opportunity. And my brain went there because when you said, you know, like, you get me, um, you know, the, all of the memes at the moment that people are responding to online, you know, they're like little behavioral memes. And then you see in the comments, people are like, oh, I thought I was the only person that did that. I guess I'm not really very unique. It's kind of an aha moment that, I mean, I guess with the proliferation of social media and the fact that we can communicate with so many more people, we find more people who are like us. And even the things that we thought were niche and small and unique and maybe quirky are maybe not so quirky because we're starting to find people who are like-minded and experience the same thing. So I guess my question is then, if a brand, big or small, is looking at understanding the codes of a cultural group to be able to really more deeply understand them and therefore connect with them and persuade them, do you have a recommendation of like, should they start with the cultural groups that are or collectives that are closer to them as a brand fit or can they go into the fringes? Yeah, well, I think about the Gaussian curve here, 
Carl Gauss, he's a, a, science, a, a mathematician, German mathematician, 1800s. And he postulated this idea that value, ideas, behaviors, they are all represented. The distribution of population is represented with what we know as the bell curve. We call it the bell curve, but it's the Gaussian curve. And it has been replicated, challenged, and we all sort of have agreed collectively that this is the most accurate representation of how things spread within a population, the distribution of things within a population. So much so that we call the Gaussian curve the normal curve, right? <laughs> and the more in the middle you are, the more normal you are. And statistically, right, depending on the the, the curve's aesthetic, 67% or so of people are in the middle. The higher the curve is, like the more normal it is, the less variance between them. The wider, the more variance, right? But the majority of people are, are there in the middle. And the idea there is that the people in the middle are more normal because there's social forces pushing on them, telling them to be normal. Dress this way, walk this way, talk that way, work at this kind of company, marry this kind of person, so on and so on, right? Those forces are, are what we call the popular culture, pushing us to be normal. And marketers love the middle because that's where the, 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 the largest market population is, right? We actually have the sales funnel to talk to those people, right? Let's blast as many as possible, maybe reach percentage of them, prayerfully, God willing, inshallah, we convert 0.012% of them, prayerfully, God willing, right? And that's been our, our approach. But that approach, while efficient, it is not effective. It's expensive. We get the Super Bowls right around the corner. We know that intuitively, right? Third of the country watches the Super Bowl and to air a spot in the Super Bowl is expensive AF. Why? Because everyone's there. Average consumer's there. The, Mer the normal American there. All the things, the traditional things are, 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 are all there. And while that's the biggest population opportunity, those people by their very nature are practicing a risk aversion strategy. That is... To remain normal, it is to look and see what everyone else is doing and continue to do that, right? Like that, like that is the entire approach. Normality is like, oh, people are wearing this now. I'm going to start wearing that. People are talking like that now. I'm going to start talking like that. So if your job is to get people to adopt behavior, a behavior that is not normal, particularly that is a novel product, a new offering, a new service, et cetera, getting those people to move will be very, very difficult, if not super expensive. But what's happening on the other side of, of that curve, the, the long tail, we'd call that fringe. We'd call that weird. We'd call that subcultural. In some cases, they're counterculture. They're counter to what is normal. In other cases, they're just sub, right? They're within the population of very, you know, a certain sect of people. Those people are typically the people who initiate the new things, the new innovations that would normally become the normal, right? Everett Rogers called that the diffusion curve. You have innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority laggards, right? It's all the same curve. It's all the Gaussian curve, right? And what we know about what is normal popular culture today is that everything that's popular today started off weird. Everything that is normal today was fringe and populated into the population to become normal. So what does that mean for brands? To your point, don't focus on the middle. Don't focus on the normal. Focus on the people who are most like you. That's the collective of the willing. Those are the people who are already on the dance floor dancing to your song, <laughs> dancing to, the, to your jam. 
and you're like, yo, that's the jam, right? They go, yeah, you want to dance? Totally. Let's boogie. Talking to the middle mm. is like talking to the people who are sitting on sitting on the side of the dance floor with their arms folded, waiting to see what everyone else is doing. No. Mm. That, to me, I think is a waste of resources. Instead, focus on the people who are most like you, because those people are most likely to move and to propagate into the population. So the question becomes then, how do you ever get scale? Because it seems so niche, which is like a trigger word for me. But <laughs> <laughs> the idea is that we get scale by bringing more people to the party, by acquiring more quote unquote subcultures who are of the same ilk, of the same belief. Right. So you got, say, for instance, you've got uh, people who are like all about sustainability, people who are all about zero waste, people who are all about recycling, people all about composting, people who are all about going green. Three or five different subcultures, five different sort of communities with different monikers. They all believe in saving the planet. Target the people who believe in saving the planet. Patagonia. Patagonia believes in minimizing our, our evasiveness on the planet. So they're talking to people who see the world similarly. They're different tribes or different subcultures inside of that belief system. And each one of them are people that you activate and together you get scale. So we communicate in such a way that is awareness driving, right? Fireworks. But in doing so, we're building campfires that bring people together and ultimately create network effects on our behalf. This is like a slightly devil's advocate question. Okay. <laughs> so bear bear yeah. with me. Um, so brands, I think a lot of brands are trying to position themselves differently now. I mean, a lot of brands are working to remain relevant sure. culturally or otherwise. For example, with sustainability that you mentioned, a lot of brands are facing like very tangible, real issues. For example, the fashion industry or the beauty industry. So they're trying to show the progress that they're making. Um, and so what that means is that the positioning that they have and how they're trying to tap into culture is very intentional. Like they're very much trying to sometimes change the perception of their brand, which I think you touch on a little bit in the book where you say, you know, like if you're if you're trying, then maybe you're not doing it. And the, you know, there's a, a role to play and there's a right to play. So how does a brand do this? And I hate, I hate this word, but authentically. Yeah, so yeah, that it good. doesn't it doesn't feel like it's exploitative and yeah. that it's genuine. Yeah. So there's there are three things at play here. The first is sort of operating within the cultural conventions of society. Right. And and that's like the sustainability part. That societally, we as a population here in this country in particular, and one would say globally, are expecting that companies are thinking about the planet and their, their dealings. 30 years ago, that wasn't really the case, right? Like that wasn't an expectation. But remember, that's what culture is. It's a system of conventions and expectations. So the societal expectations are that sustainability is a part of your work because the planet is a stakeholder that we don't talk enough about, but should be considered. And therefore, to maintain a good rapport in the current conventions of society, companies are like, hey, we're doing this for the planet, we're not for the planet, just we don't hear no smoke, right? We don't want no smoke. 
The second part is like, all right, so how do we leverage these cultural changes, not to just be in good rapport, not to just be in good standing, right? But actually leverage these cultural changes as a turbo, a fuel injection to our, our work. Well, that's where like, well, how do we play into culture or how do we tap into it or whatever verb we like to use there? And I think of it uh, like my, my friend Eric Holtgren uses a, a metaphor, I write about this in the book, as a car that you can either drive culture, that is you contribute new cultural characteristics, new beliefs, new artifacts, behaviors, and language to the group of people who you're trying to engage. And they go, oh yeah, totally bet. Give me that. Thank you. That you are leading it by contributing new cultural characteristics, which is why when we think about people who lead culture, they're typically artists, musicians, you know, fashion folks. They are creating new artifacts, creating new cultural production that we go, oh yeah, totally. Yeah, give me that because that becomes a way of which we socialize our perspective on the world. So you can drive it. The, the people who lead culture, those people who win, right? Over and over and over again. Or you can ride shotgun. That is, you can participate in culture. Well, how do you participate in culture? That you join into the discourse, into the dialogue with the point of view about it. That is indicative, or to your to point, the word you don't like, <laughs> that is authentic to who you are. Well, what is authenticity? Authenticity, which is probably the third thing I want to get into. So I'll table that for a second. That is authentic to who you are. That is a part of your identity, right? And that's the thing about like weighing in to a conversation. If we're talking about, I don't know, say we're talking about sports. Let's just say we're talking about football. And uh, you and I are talking, if someone jumps into conversation and go, hey, you know, the quarterback throws the ball, right? And we go, <laughs> yeah. Nice. Anyway, Joe, like, <laughs> And that's how brands kind of are when they don't have anything novel, no point of view on the subject. They go, ooh, that, that Drake sure can rap. <laughs> oh, okay. Thanks. Mm. Right. Which leads to the third, the third way in which you tap into culture. You don't drive it. You don't ride shotgun because you're not, you're not participating in the conversation, but you suck tailpipe. And as you just follow. You just do, you just do it. And you just put your color, your color scheme, your brand mark, your, uh, your flair without any new and novel perspective. It's like saying the quarterback can throw the ball and you go, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> Which leads to the third part, authenticity. So how do we do this authentically? There's a scholar named David Brown Jr. who talks about authenticity as transcending context, being the most the, the most truest version of yourself in all its complexity and all its intersectionality, despite the context. And the idea there for brands is, you know, you got to know who you are to be authentic, not what you do, right? More than like what you do isn't who you are, right? Like you're a marketer, Joe, but that's not who you are. That's like, it's not a monolithic slice of who you are. It's just a part of who you are. You are something far greater than that. And it's because of who you are that you actually choose to be a marketer. But you have to know who you are first to be authentic. Lauren Hill said it best, how are you going to win if you ain't right within? Right? So you got you to know who you are. And we know who we are. We know who we are as a brand, as a company, as an entity, as an organization. We can then say, okay, regardless of the context, I'm going to be me. I'm going to be me. So the Marcus you see in the bar, the same Marcus you see, in the classroom, the same mark as you see in the church sanctuary, regardless of the context, I am myself. Now, I pay mind to the context that I'm in, but I'm still very much myself. 
So when you're weighing into the discourse, when you are contributing or participating in the cultural discourse, you're doing it from a point of view that is uniquely yours. That's not conquested, not borrowed from somebody else for the moment just to be cool for what it is, but it's a reflection of the way you see the world once you know how you see the world. Yeah, I love that so much. And, you know, the point around um, what you do doesn't define you. I think we would say that that is true of ourselves as people as well. So if I'm a marketer, why can't I also be a podcaster? Or if you're a professor, why can't you also be an author? So if we if we hold that to be true, that we don't limit ourselves by what we do, but by our ambitions and our passions, then why can't that also be true of a brand? A brand isn't only what it does or creates, it's also what it does for society or, you know, there is the, this very real thing, which um, I've been passionate about for a long time, brand stretch, which sounds like jargon, but it's true. Brands are able to stretch. But I think that the point that you're hitting on there is really, really important that you almost need to evaluate or be very clear about where you're starting from. What is your starting point? And what is your realm of ambition? Understanding what you're actually contributing to by doing that. I absolutely love that. And I could not agree more. Like I'd underscore it, co-sign it. Absolutely. Because like when you retire from being a marketer, do you no longer exist? What do you mean? Like it's not representative of your personhood. And brands, you know, they anthropomorphize themselves. Like, they, you know, they're, they're just not, they're, they're, they are representative of something. They're, they're an idea. They mean something. They signify something. So, you know, the moment that a company stops selling what they used to sell, they're no longer that company, right? Like, is, is, that, is that what we're, what we're saying? You know, of, of course not. Like, should MTV stop existing because they no longer sell, they no longer play music videos? Of course not. Right. But the question becomes then who is MTV if they're not playing music videos? And that I, I would one would say is probably the identity crisis that we, that MTV has been struggling with for the last decade or so. Who are we if we're not selling, if we're not playing music videos? Who yeah. am I if I'm not a marketer? Who am I if I'm not a <laughs> professor? Like these are existential crises that we go through because we haven't yeah. quite tapped into who we are beyond what we do. I think that's a really powerful thing for brands too. How do we see the world? Because there's going to be a moment in time when, you know, you no longer sell what you sell. Like, that, like it's just the evolution of things, right? It, 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 it'll be a moment in time where that happens. Then who are you? Yeah, it's such an important question to ask. And, you know, I think that we're inside of the, the context of the corporate world as well. Internally, we talk a lot, whichever company you're at, right? You're like, we're a candy company or we're a burger company. And that defines you. But if you go back even with McDonald's to the, you know, very, one of the very first statements that Ray Kroc made is, you know, whatever it is that we're going to be selling, it's going to be what people want. And we're going to be making more of it than anybody else. It's actually like, what are you, what's, what are you delivering versus what is the physical product that you're making as a definition of you? That's right. That's right. Steve Jobs will often say, we believe in challenging the status quo. We're, we're a status quo challenging company. That's what we do. We just so happen to make computers. We just so happen to sell music. We just so happen to make movies. We just so happen to sell television. We just so happen to do those things. These things are all expressions. They're all manifestations of a belief, a way of seeing the world. And I think that when you operate at that point, you go, oh man, like it's so freeing. You go, oh man, we, like we can get into any genre, anything we want to do to Ray Kroc's point, but whatever we're going to do it, we're going to do it this way because that's just what we do. And that's just who we are. Yeah. 
I love that. And I, I love how you articulate everything so beautifully anchored in science, but also like with so much kindness. Like you can tell that your intentions are so positive and so optimistic. But what I am also getting from you is like a little bit of rebellion. And even in your life story, you can tell like, you know, your parents were like, be an engineer. You're like, I'm going to be in Boys to Men instead. It's like, do you, do you find that you still have that? Is that a bit of a driver for you as well? Like you're always kind of thinking about what do I do that's different? I, I, I think that, I don't know if I'm like naturally socially deviant. I don't know if, I don't know if I'm that. <laughs> I just, I, there, there was a quote from Steve Jobs that I just believe so, like so fervently that everything in the world around you was made by someone no smarter, no more talented than you are, right? If that be the case, then what's keeping you from from making a dent in the world? And I was like, yeah, like, like what's keeping me from doing the thing? And if I'm like, why, why can't, like, what's that? People go, ah, you can't do that. And I go, well, 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 why not? Well, we'll say more. Like, I've always been like, well, like, there, there's, there's a, 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 a scholar who used to be in Michigan who, who passed, great scholar named C.K. Prahalad. And he talks about this idea of the dominant logic. The dominant logic is the status quo sort of cognitions that guide how we make decisions, right? In a lot of ways, dominant logic is kind of fortified uh, by culture, but the dominant logic in organizations is that, you know, this is how we do things around here. It's just what the rules are. It's just how we're going to get things done. And when we think about like Steve Jobs, not to sort of reverence him, but we think about Steve Jobs that like he just constantly broke the dominant logic and in doing so, he was able to create things that weren't even conceived. And when I think about like the people that I've looked up to the most of my life, like from the Michael Jacksons of the world to, to Boyz II Men, I'm still waiting for that phone call. They went against the dominant logic. And I just always feel that the thing that you want most is oftentimes just on the other side of the barrier. And that barrier is normality. That barrier, you know, it is probably sound crude way to say it, but it is mediocrity. It is like the the, the status quo, and you know sometimes you just got to be you know sort of brave enough to to climb the walls. Who's on the other side? Yeah, definitely. And you know you're obviously you're doing that for yourself, and you're like personally rewarded by it. But you're also doing it for other people. It's that famous quote about going down a path that doesn't currently exist. By doing that, you're creating a trail for other people to come and follow you and do something similar and allow themselves the permission to. You know, like if you haven't written a book before, well, you know, and it's what you want to do, who's to say that you can't do it? Just go and follow what it is that you're wanting to learn more about, going back to your very first point or, you know, what you have a passion for. Yeah, I, I tell everyone all the time, and it's not puffery, in any room I'm in, I'm the dumbest person in the room for sure, right? Even this room right now, I'm not, with you, not the in dumbest this person room. in the room. <laughs> <Not> in <this laughs> dumbest room. person in the room. And, and the thing is that like, I say that if I was able to do this, anybody can do this. Like if I was able to get, accomplish this, it is so haveable. You just got to do it, right? And when it comes to like, like I never thought I'd write a book. Yeah, like I, I was terrible. Like I couldn't spell save my life as a kid. Like these things were all impediments uh, for me. And the hope to your point is that, look, you know, it, it is never lost on me that I'm a black kid from Detroit, right? And the the rooms that I, that I'm so fortunate enough to be in, and the conversation I'm so like just so grateful to participate to be a part of. There aren't a lot of people who look like me. And sometimes you just need to see someone that looks like you to go, oh, if he could do it, why can't I do it? 
right? Not even just like the the outer, but like to hear someone's story to go like that guy failed a whole lot and was able to make it happen. Why why can't I do do the same thing? And I feel like if I could do that, if I could just, if I can inspire like just one person to jump over that wall and break through, and then my living was not in vain. I can guarantee that you inspire a lot of people, Marcus. So um, thank you so much for sharing that. One last question for you, which is what your go-to is when you're trying to get your head in a completely different space and gain a new perspective and look outside. Honestly, I talked to my daughter, Georgia, nine-year-old Georgia, and I'll show her something and go, well, what do you see? What do you think? And, you know, she, she doesn't have much of a filter. So she's, she, you know, she's pretty, <laughs> she, she, she's typically pretty uh, transparent with me. And even if like has nothing, like, like even if her response at face value doesn't add value, what it does is it just provides a window that I haven't even considered yet, which means that there's probably other windows that need to, to go. It, it's like, it's these, these questions that create doubt in what seems just so rigorous in, in what is reality it just one little speck, one little poke in the wall. You go, well, what's behind there then? Like, and I think that like Georgia does a great job of that for me. Like, I go, well, you see this. What do you see? She go, I, I, I see ducks. And I go, how do you see ducks? <laughs> like, there's nothing there. And I go, but maybe it's, and then as soon as that happens, and that's when the, the, the wheel starts spinning. Well, I think that's beautifully tied into what you said before, that there's predictability in the unpredictable and children are such a great gateway towards the unpredictable and the things that we don't even think to look for, let alone see. So I love that. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Loved this conversation. So much insight. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Looking forward to uh, episode two for us. Yes, let's do it. Thanks, Marcus. You got it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, or share the show, and I will see you next time. Until then, keep looking outside. Bye.